All right, well, we'll get started. Today, we're actually going to take a break from the study in Genesis. It's been something that's been on my heart for a couple of years, something that the Lord's been working in us, and I've been talking with friends about it, and just a bunch of things. But this past week, it's been kind of heavy on my heart, and I think Wednesday or Thursday night, it was kind of settled that, nope, I'm not going to do Genesis this morning. So uh, today, we're going to be in a topical message, and hopefully we can get through it here because my screen is acting up. And where are we? But today's the title of today's message as I fight this technology. <laughs> Whatever happened to the good old printout, right? I thought yeah. I'd be doing a favor here by going mm-hmm. further. But the title of the message is Be the Church. Be the Church. Well, if that's the title, well, what does it mean to be the church? What does it mean? I think that there's many, and in fact, I know there are many different answers given today. Some people say the same thing about what it means to be the church, but they end up practicing differently. Others might say different things about what it is to be the church, but perhaps practice the same way. I think if you look at Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox Christianity, they might say different things about what it means to be the church, but I I would challenge to say that they probably practice very similarly. Maybe their hats are a little different, but they both still have to wear a hat, you know? Maybe their idols are a little different, but they still have the same sort of iconography going around. Others might even say different things and practice differently, such as uh, Catholics or Protestants. They say different things about what the church is, and then they practice it differently as well. And lastly, there might even be some others that might say the same thing and practice the same thing, even if they look different, even if the practice takes on a different flavor The essence is the same practice. If we look in Revelation, we see the seven lampstands, the seven churches um, that Jesus walks through. He walks through seven different lampstands, and these can represent, well, they did represent seven churches in the region when John was writing this in around AD 90. They also represent seven church ages from the time of Pentecost until the rapture. But they also can represent different denominations and local bodies that we even see today, I believe. I think that we can apply these to what we might experience in modern Christianity. And in fact, if we look at them as the church ages, we do see that there is overlap on the timeline. Uh, As a refresher, there's Ephesus. This was the church that was known for having worked hard and not fainted, having separated themselves from the wicked, and they were built up and admonished for having forsaken uh, their first love. Return to your first love. You know, you're doing all these good things, but... That's not the point. You need to go back to Jesus. The church in Smyrna, the church that was admired for its tribulation and poverty, and they were forecast to suffer persecution. I mean, that was in history when the Roman persecution came. These believers believed until death. They were ripped apart by lions in the, in the square. We can look at, as my notes go here, oh, it's got, I think the screen may be dirty, and it thinks I'm touching it. But Smyrna, you might think of the church in China today. Or they're persecuted. A church in Muslim countries where they are routinely persecuted for their faith. Yeah, what is going on? Sorry, give me a minute here because I need to accurately do this. I might have to grab my phone. My apologies. Uh, it's on top of the cabinet. What happened? Yep. Yeah, I can take it. Thanks, babe. All right. All right. Let's see if this this one works for me. Okay. So there's also the church in Pergamum, uh, the church located uh, at Satan's seat, uh, needed to repent of allowing false teachers that this church embraced false doctrine. And it's interesting that the tie between Satan's seat, which was, um, you know, there's some history there of uh, demonic worship, but also the fact that, wow, Satan had a seat in a church, and the evidence of that was false doctrine. And sadly to say, I think if we we look closely at a lot of the doctrine coming out of the so-called church today, you could see that it is in fact demonic. Uh, Thyatira, uh, the church known for its charity, its love, whose latter works were greater than the former, and yet they still held the teaching of a false prophet. A prophet test, it says. Hmm. I wonder what that church is. Uh, Sardis, the church that has a good name, cautioned to fortify itself and return to God through repentance. That there was a church that had a good name that the world looked on, that maybe even other churches looked on and said, 
You're doing good, church. But God says to that church, you got to repent. The world thinks you're great, but you're not, in my eyes. And that's what matters, right? And there was a Philadelphian church, uh, I think the one that we all love, the church that was steadfast in faith, that had kept God's word and endured patiently. This church of the, of the last days before the rapture, a church that loves God, is faithful, and practices things correctly. And then there's the final church, the Laodicean church, a church that was lukewarm, that Jesus would say, man, I wish you guys would just either get it all wrong or get it all right. Because the way it stands now, you're getting it wrong and you won't even hear me. And I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to vomit you out. The God of all heaven and earth says to his people, or people who claim to be his people, I'm going to vomit you. You know, some of our friends have the flu right now and vomiting is no fun. Imagine the Lord of all saying, I'm going to vomit you, that you're like that to me. I, I do not want to be that church. And in fact, God doesn't want them to be that church. Otherwise, he wouldn't have warned them. Well, what do you think, what do I think, our church is? The church as a whole, maybe a denomination you're familiar with. The church that you belong to or have belonged to or are seeking to belong to. I think we'd all claim our own church to be the Church of Philadelphia, a church that is loving, a church that is faithful, a church that is true and doesn't really have much bad said about it, especially in these last days. But as a friend and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, are we really? Are we really that church? We like to think of ourselves a certain way. A lot of times we like to look and and go out and, and present ourselves in a certain way and forget what we really look like when we come to the mirror of God's Word. Forget that, oh... I, I, yeah, I'm sucking it a little, sucking it in a little bit when I go out in public. I tend to make other people think, you know, as far as we were talking yesterday about social media and how there's this idea and some of these kids get suicidal and depressed because they watch and they idolize these people on social media and they think that their lives are perfect, but that's only the life that they're presenting to the rest of the world and to themselves. And I think sometimes we try and present that in our own lives to God and only give him, oh God, look at all this great that I'm doing. And God goes, no, that's, that's not the real you. That's not the real you. But before we dig into what it means to be the church or what the church is, I believe it's important that we first consider what it means to be a believer. Be a believer. A few years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to start sharing through Corinthians. And that was the title of the series was to be a believer. That as we look through the Corinthian, uh, first Corinthians, we can see a lot of teachings that are really influential and important in learning how to be a believer because we see these believers who are doing it all wrong and a lot of times when you have an example that does it all wrong it's very easy to come back and get lessons on how to do it right it's when things are cloudy that sometimes it's harder to come to the truth but we all know this in romans 10 8-13 it says but what does it say the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that is the word of faith which we preach that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is uh, no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over all, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is, to be saved, all we have to do is call on the name of the Lord. And accurately call on the name of the Lord. That Jesus is the one who died for our sins. You know, that he's the one who paid the price for our sin. And he's the only way that we can be forgiven. That we can't call on the name of the Lord and bring works. We can't call on the name of the Lord and bring Buddha. But call on the name of the Lord and say, God, just like in Star Wars, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Help me, Jesus, you truly are my only hope. I believe David summed it up perfectly in Psalm 116, 1 through 2. He says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications, because he has inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call upon him as long as I live. David says, I love the Lord because he's heard me. And therefore, I'm going to love him for the rest of my life. I'm going to follow him. That's being a believer, guys. Realizing that God loves us, that God hears us, and no matter what the answer is, he loves us, and so we're going to love Him the rest of our lives. Because, and honestly, if we look at our lives, that's all we're looking for. 
When we go out and try and be successful, we look to have our needs met, try and have others see us for the way we want to be seen and loved for the way we want to be. But God is the only one who really hears us. God is the only one who really loves us, who really, in a sense, respects us, even though we're a pile of dirt. God would look upon us and say, you're my child. And yet the, we look for that in the world all the time in all the wrong places. And at some point in time, we're going to come up empty. Maybe it's not right away. You know, we were talking yesterday about talking with your friend that, you know, this is working for them right now. And well, yeah, there are a lot of ways in this life that will work for you right now and may even work up until the day you die. A lot of self-help. Maybe even will get you to that final goal. Maybe that 12-step program will get you away from alcohol for the rest of your life. But you haven't been redeemed. And when it comes to the next life, there's no salvation there. There's no 12 steps anymore. There's, there's no step. Okay? And Jesus said there are four types of soil. When it comes to being a believer, when it comes to even hearing the word of God, and I think these go hand in hand because in order to become a believer, you need to hear the word of God. In order for people to hear the word of God, someone needs to preach. In order for someone to preach, they need to be sent. So if we've heard the God or we're about to hear the word of God or when we hear the word of God, whether we're a believer or unbeliever, Jesus said that there's four types of reactions of things that go on. And we know these. These are the four types of soil in Matthew 13, 3 through 11. He says, uh, he spoke many things to them in parables saying, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, uh, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Like, Jesus would speak these parables to them that they might hear. He says, if you've got ears to hear, hear. And the question is, do we have ears to hear what God is saying in his word? Or do we just take it for what someone else has told us? Or are we really willing to listen to what perhaps God is saying through the word? And that's what I've loved about our study through Genesis so far, is that I think we've been willing to try and listen to what God is saying in his word. And not just take it as those stories we heard in Sunday school, but really consider what is God saying in his word. And not that we're finding some new truth, but really just seeing the truth that God has already put there uh, and allowing him to speak to us in, in a new way. And even as I look this up, uh, there are apparently, I didn't do deep research on this, but just from a quick search, it says that there are four different types of soil, sandy soil, clay soil, silt soil, and loam soils. And only one really is the best for planting in it. The rest, you know, the water goes all the way through, and as the water goes all the way through, the nutrients go all the way through, so it's not good for planting. Other ones, it holds so much water, like clay, or it runs off where it holds all the nutrients, but it's too dense for anything to grow. Uh, and then there's mixtures of both, and then there's one good soil, that you know, the dark planting soil, that will really grow. And it's interesting that Jesus said there are four types of soils, and even today, we know that there are four types, but I believe that there are four distinct experiences, so to speak, when we see the Word of God, and as the Word of God goes out, there are four distinct results. I think we can experience these four things in our lives, but these are really the four results of what happens when God's Word encounters someone's life. Um, by the wayside, that the birds came, the enemy came and devoured it. We all know this. We know these four types. We've heard them. We've been around the, uh, the Word of God for some time. But the enemy comes and devours it. And haven't we seen that in people's lives when we share the word of God with them, when they hear the word, when even they've maybe even turned to the Bible in a time of trouble and they hear that truth of God, but then all of a sudden they scoff it. They turn away from it. It has no effect in their life. It's like they never even went to church that week. It's like they never even heard the word of God. It's because the enemy came and took it away from them because they were by the wayside. They were unwilling to be going in the way. They were content with being on the wayside and seeing from a distance. And, you know, if you walk by the side of the road, what do you find? You find litter, you find junk. And if we're making our lives by the side of the road, you know, that's going to happen. But isn't it comforting that uh, when the ruler had a feast and the guests didn't come, that he sends his servant out to go by the highways and the by byways, to go in the shoulder of the road, in the bushes, and to pick those people up and invite them to the feast. So it's not a condemnation. It's just saying, if that's where we want to be, that's what's going to happen. But the stony heart, where there was not much earth, it wasn't deep, but that it sprung up right away. And haven't we seen that? People come to faith, 
they get really excited about the things of God. They get plugged in right away. They're there every week. They've got their Bible Sunday, Wednesday, Tuesday, home studies, whatever. They're going and they're growing up well. Look at how green that shoot is. Like uh, the kids have some grass in the kitchen that their aunt gave them, and it sprung up nicely. But that soil is not very deep. How long will that grass really live? You know, when trials really come, there's not much there, and that's what happens. We see the sun comes out and scorches them, and they wither up quickly. They wither up quickly. Thorns. Perhaps they have good soil, but perhaps there are thorns growing there. Um, there's a farmer I watch on YouTube, which is kind of interesting, but he talks about uh, when he goes to get a new field, he uses people's backyards and they sublet them to him and he grows in the city and sells the greens. But sometimes they'll come to a yard and there's a pervasive uh, weed in the yard and he's tried before, but no matter how much he tries to dig it out and how much work it takes him all summer to get it all out, it just comes back. There's just too much junk in this plot of soil for it to come out. Um, so even though the soil might have been good, the location might have been good, the fact that this other thing was growing there is just too, it just, it won't allow healthy growth to happen. Isn't that the case in some people's lives where they have good soil? Things want to grow there. That's why the weeds want to grow there. It's good soil. But when the word of God comes, it can't grow up. It gets choked out. You know, we see people who are doing well, who receive the word of God, who want to hear the word of God, but then they begin to desire a relationship or, or they lose their job or whatever the case may be, if it is, and then they begin to turn aside and, and forsake God and it gets choked out. Even though as much as they wanted God, because they allowed these other things to remain growing in their life, it ended up choking out the word of God. You know, we, we tend to think that, that there's no weeding process that needs to be done in our lives, you know, that we hear the word of God, but we have no, we don't need to worry about that weed growing over there. Well, what did Jesus say? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, it's going to come in and a little bit of leaven, leaven's what? The whole lump, exactly. And if we allow any weeds to grow in our life, anything that we know shouldn't be there, be careful, it, it will choke out. Think about bitterness. It says that bitterness is a root that goes deep. And I don't know if you ever try to pull weeds out. I remember being at a friend's house years ago before he got married. He wrote me into somehow doing his weeds. Uh, and, you know, it, it was fine. But I was out there and I had a thing over my face. And my allergies would come up. But this weed root just kept going and going and going and going. And that's bitterness. And man, doesn't that choke out the life in our life? Doesn't that choke out? The Word of God says, love your neighbor. But you've got this deep root of bitterness. And this deep root goes so down deep. And you haven't dealt with it that you're unable to love your neighbor. And that word gets choked out in our lives. But then that fourth soil, the good ground, and it actually yielded a crop 100 times, 60 times, 30 times. That was all good crop. That apparently this whole plot of soil was good for growing in. Well, I wonder, as with the churches, who do we think we are? I think sometimes we tend to think that, oh, we're good soil. I'm good soil. There's no weeds in me. There's no rocks in me. I'm not by the side of the road. There's no birds coming in my life. But I think if we're honest, we'd say... Maybe we're not good soil. Has there been a hundredfold fruit in our life? Has there been even 60 or even 30 or even five? One? Has any good thing cropped up in our life? Again, I think these things can speak generally to all people. You can take it as a, a, a lump bucket statement for all of humanity. Oh, that's funny, huh? But I think it also can apply to us personally. Personally. Um, that the reality is that even if we are good soil, there will be days when we don't have good soil, when we act like bad soil, when we allow a weed to grow, when we allow the sun to come and scorch the word of God in our lives. Because in all honesty, even the best field in life is going to have rough patches. When you go find that beautiful 10 acres you want to find, there's probably an acre and a half that's swampy somewhere. There's probably four acres that are good. There's probably some oil spill from the previous tenant somewhere. You know, as good as it looks, the closer you look, there's probably more there. Because the point is that none of us is perfect. None of us is perfect. None of us is good without God. And in fact, if we were good on our own without Him, where would the growth happen? How would, why would we even need God's Word to be playing in our lives if we were good and giving fruit on our own? But the point is, is that we... that. Uh, None of us are good soil automatically or naturally, but that we allow God to make us perfect soil when we allow him to break up our fallow ground, when we allow him to pull up the weeds, to dig out the rocks, to put fertilizer, to put a scarecrow in us to scare away the birds. Hey, buddy, you need some? Okay, <laughs> you can come sit if you want. 
but that we need to allow him to break up the fallow ground. Hosea 10, 11 through 13 says, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow, Judah shall plow, Jacob shall break his clods. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way and the multitude of your mighty men. God says, time to break up that hard ground that God might rain righteousness in you and bring a real crop. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32 says, I'm going to skip for time, let me see. He says, uh, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your unrighteousness. He says that. That God wants us to dig up our soil. God wants to dig up our soil. God wants to dwell within us. God wants these good things to come out of our life because, yeah, it's an evidence of Him, but also it's a blessing to us. He wants to see fruit in our lives. He wants to see good things in our lives. But we have to allow Him to dig up our lives. We have to allow Him to say, hey, this is broken. I need to break this up. This is hard. You know, I was coming out of your house and I had that flag laying on the ground and me just like in the flag, I tried to stick it right up. I'm like, oh, the ground's too hard, so we'll just leave it here. <laughs> you know, like, there's no way that it's going to stick up because the ground is too hard. It's too cold. It needs to be dug up. And I'm not about to dig up your yard to stick a flag in it. Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I read this quote from A.W. Tozer this week. He says, if your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform it, then you are not converted at all. You are simply a victim of the accept Jesus heresy. That there is out there people who accept Jesus into their lives say, yeah, I'll take the Bible, I'll read the Bible, I'll go to church. I believe he's God. But there's been zero change in their life. That there hasn't been repentance. And if there's not repentance, then Jesus isn't in your life. Because the only way Jesus can be in your life is if you realize I am broken and nothing. My life needs the cross. My life, in fact, deserves the cross. And everything I've been doing up to this point was cross-worthy. That if we allow Jesus to come into our lives, and Jesus, instead of not accepting in our life, but for him to become our life, become sin and death on the cross for us, then our life is no different. It's Our life is it's got to be going one way, and when we meet Jesus like Saul on the road to Damascus, it begins to go the other way. From persecuting the church, from killing others, from being religious in his own strength, to, Lord, I'm blind. Who are you? What do you want me to do? And begin to go the other way and begin to reach others and be willing to die for something that you still want to eradicate. And have you and have I, since being saved, changed direction? And how much of our lives have changed direction? I don't mean you get saved and you have to quit your job. Or you have to go from wearing red all day to wearing blue all day. Maybe that'll happen. If you're a gang member, you can wear red all day. Maybe you're not going to wear red anymore. But sincerely, how much of your life has changed direction? Maybe more of it will change overnight. And maybe some of it will take your whole life. There are things in my life that happened overnight that my life is different. And other things that are still, God is still changing the direction of my heart and life. And he will continue to do so until I die. But the thing is, is that my life is continually changing direction more towards heaven and less towards hell, and less towards my own way. Like we were saying before, more of you and less of me, God. And that's not a one-time thing. That should be an all-the-time thing. That should be every time we come to God. You know, sometimes, I shared about the other week, you know, we'll go through our day, we'll sit down with the Lord at night and pray for a moment, and we'll think, oh, we have nothing to confess, but if we give God a moment to say, hey, all right, yeah, my attitude was that way. I did say that way to my kids. I did act that way at work, or I did say that to my wife, or I should have, you know, we begin to just take a moment and let God begin to break up that hard, fallow ground. And realize, oh man, you know, like Paul says, you know, as I begin to consider my life, I'm the chief false sinners because I know all these things, and yet I still sin. Not that he continues in the same sin, 
but that it, no matter how long he digs, no matter how long he walks, there's more to be dug up. But how much has changed in your inner life? And how much has changed in the outer? How we act, what we do, but also what we desire. Are our desires different? And I don't mean that, you know, it's wrong. Like, if you have a desire to have a family and kids before you get saved, that after you get saved, you don't desire to have family and kids. But perhaps those desires don't become the driving desires of your life anymore. Like Jesus said, seek me first and my kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. That we say, oh, I'm not going to seek after them anymore. I'm going to let God bring them into my life. But also, how do we base our decisions? A lot of times people come up with charts and lists, and especially in business, you come up with a, a business case. I'm sure you can speak to this as far as money and dollars and cents and and the market and figure out how you're going to make your, your upcoming business plan. But even then I've heard that in business, you've got to continually change. You've got to read the market because that's the only way to stay in business. You know, you can't just do what you want if there's no market for it. Um, but as believers, how do we base our decisions? Is it the same way we did before with just a little sprinkle of Jesus on it? Or is it completely different? Is it with the word of God in prayer? Does he direct our paths or is God an afterthought for the paths we've already directed. Corey Ten Boom, uh, the girl you know, was trying to save Jews during uh, the Holocaust, who herself and her sister ended up going to a death camp. And, um, you know, ended up uh, just a really powerful story. Uh, they forgave the guard, and the guard came to know the Lord. But she says, Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? That in that deepness and that darkness, they wanted to pray, get me out of here, Lord. But I think it was their sister who ended up dying in there who was the one saying, no, God's got us here. There's a reason. Thank you for the fleas, God, because it keeps the guard out. I don't know if I'd pray that. I'd say, God, get the fleas off me. But they were like, thank you for the fleas because it allows us to have some sort of privacy. So does it direct our life or do we want it to just kind of come along with our life? And even if we claim to do so, even if I think in our, in our mind we might say that that is the case, but perhaps our practice is far from it. And that's part of sanctification is getting all the practice lined up. But even if we claim to do so, what is the fruit in our lives? Is there a fruitful fellowship with the Lord? Or is it just going from guessing to guessing, stumbling to stumbling? Or is it going from faith to faith as we walk and as we pray and as, allow, as we allow God to direct our paths? Our walk should consistently be improving. I'm not saying that we're never going to stumble. I'm not saying that we're never going to fall. But if we look at our lives as an overall chart, is it an upward trajectory? Like some people would hope the stock market goes. Or is it a downward slope? Or is it like the EKG of the person who does die? Just a flat, straight line with no life in it. I know which way God wants it to be. He wants us to go after that upward call of God. But if we've turned from sin and we've turned to God, it needs to be in everything. A lot of times I think we just take it to being, I'm turning away from my sin of whatever sin it was that we used to practice daily. We used to even enjoy and want to get others to do. And we come to Christ and we realize, this is awful. I want nothing to do with it. We turn away from it. But we only stop at the bad things. We don't start to begin to look at perhaps the things that we consider good or the things we consider right. If you look at the world today, they consider sin to be good and right and you know, to begin to tell someone that, well, the way you're living, it's not good. I mean, just look at it. It's not good for you. Look at what it's doing to your life. Look at how it's changing your appearance. And that's not who you are. It's heresy. It's blasphemy in the world's eyes to begin to say that to someone. But let alone as a believer, do we come and say, as the thing you've been practicing, as the way you've been coming about your relationship with God and your relationship with the church, is it right or is it wrong? Does it need to be repented of? Are there things that, in the sense that perhaps it's not out, outright sin, but it just needs to be changed. It just needs to go from good to best. I'm going to read some quotes from A.W. Tozer in this devotional. I think we read the one from the 16th the other week, so I'm just going to read January 28th. He says, In pursuing God in holy worship, I need to be very clear about something. You cannot worship Him as you will. The one who made you to worship also has decreed how you shall worship Him. God does not accept just any kind of worship. God has rejected all the worship of mankind in our present condition. Although God wants us to worship Him, and He commands us to and invites us to come, He condemns and rejects all the worship of mankind. He says at least four kinds of worship are prevalent on the earth today, and God rejects them all. Cain's worship, Samaritan's worship, pagan worship, and nature worship. 
Abel offered unto God the sacrifice of blood, while Cain came with a bloodless sacrifice and offered to the Lord flowers and fruit of the growth of the earth. This worship rested upon a mistaken impression of the kind of God God is. Cain came to worship a God of his own imagination. But God accepts worship only when it is pure and acceptable by the Holy Ghost. And we remember when we were in that part of Genesis that God had given them the example that Cain and Abel knew the right way to come. And Cain was upset because God accepted Abel's worship. But God said to Cain, Cain, if you're just on the right thing, I would have accepted you. It's just, I just can't accept this. This doesn't, this is not a picture of the sacrifice I am making for you. This is not Jesus in your life. And I think a lot of times when we come to worship God, it's missing that sacrifice. It's not an accurate picture of who Jesus is. And when I say worship, I don't necessarily mean just singing. I don't necessarily mean just church. I mean our whole lives when we come to worship God, when we come to tithe, when we come to, to speak to others, when we come to love others, when we come to forgive others. Is it a picture of Jesus' sacrifice? Or is it something else entirely of our own creation? Is it what we think God expects? Or is it what God really expects? And what God, in a sense, really demands? I think, and I know sometimes we get saved like I said, we put, it, we, we put away the bad things, we begin to do some good things, but again, we haven't moved on to the best things. We've changed who we worship, but not how we worship. If you were of another faith and you came to Jesus, do you maintain the same ritual? Perhaps you just changed your necklace from the one with Jesus on the cross to the one without him on the cross. How much of your ritual has changed? You're still wearing a necklace, you're still putting the, you know what I mean? There's still some, there's some sameness there. And again, I can't, you can't just say, because you wear a necklace, it's an idol, but perhaps where is your heart in that matter? Um, I remember getting saved, uh, thankfully, throwing everything out. A lot of times, like throwing out all my movies, all my CDs, just going to the dumpster and throwing them out because I was just convicted. It was just, this stuff is garbage. I need to get rid of it. And some of the, some of the movies I've bought again because it's, it's okay. I can watch them. It's okay. Some, but there's other ones that I would never buy again. And in fact, uh, I wish I didn't remember watching them. But I threw everything out. And I would come to church and I would soak everything up. I would look to everyone else to see how they're doing life, to see these people obviously know God and they want to worship God. Well, how do I do that? Because I realize in life, everything I'm doing is wrong. I can't get a relationship to work. I can't do what I want in life. I can't get what I want. I, everything is messed up and broken. I'm broken. I'm depressed. Something's wrong, obviously. But I know God is real. And so if I come to where the people of God hang out, I can begin to understand and I can begin to know God in the right way because there's no way I'm going to be able to come up with it on my own. I need to see it lived out. And I would come and I would soak it in and, and sit under the word and sit under worship. And it was just like, I don't even remember the messages that were preached, but I just remember sitting there. Like, just this truth that I had been desiring was just light speed past my head. And it was, it was amazing. Um, I also remember being invited over uh, some, uh, some people who have become my friend's uh, house for worship and Bible study, some young people, and coming in and knowing that there are, there's such a thing as a home study and being excited for it and exuberant for it because, yeah, I want anything to do with God, anything to do with the church, anything to do with the Bible, I want to do with it because I know this is the truth. God has shown me this is the truth. I've looked around. Nothing else is the truth. This is the truth. I want the truth. I need the truth. And when I get there, we go in the basement and we put on some, I think it's probably Passion 98 or something. And we listen to it and we're singing and we're dancing. We're holding hands and we're praying. I remember thinking, you can do this? <laughs> and just how good and how special it was and how wonderful it was. Because I remember sitting down. For me, it was going from sitting in my college dorm in a circle, passing a drug implement and getting high, to now sitting in a circle and singing to God and worshiping him, and truly, not to belittle the experience, but getting high. In a sense, being lifted up to heaven, being lifted up to where Jesus is as he comes down and ministered to us and saying, oh, this is infinitely better. This is the right way to worship. This is the right way to be happy. This is the right way to, to have fellowship and love with other people. Not the hippie, love everyone, man, but love God and be with others. But at some point, a, a kid grows up. There's only so long... We can look at others and, and totally have our experience based on what they have. At some point, there needs to be a growing up to where that experience then becomes our own personal experience and how we personalize. I remember uh, French Aaron saying, you should get a CD player. Back in the day when you still got a CD player, before iPods even, to where I'd get a CD player and I'd go find worship and I'd listen to every song at the Christian bookstore because I didn't know 
anything about any music anymore, even though I knew so much about music before because I didn't know any music about God. And I'd get ones, I listened to it for a while, didn't like it, and I would get another one and find ones that really ministered to my relationship with the Lord and I. But I would have that personal worship time in the morning and at night. And it was a lot easier without kids and a family. I could go to bed whenever I wanted and get some quiet time whenever I wanted. But sincerely, worshiping by myself at home in the day and also with word and prayer and just how much I needed that because I was able to be broken there. I was able to, as I said, if you want to get mad at God, you can be mad with Him. You can cry before Him. And it's okay there. If I'm out bawling in public, which would happen occasionally in church in the beginning because this is where God is breaking me, that's okay. But at some point, there needs to be that personal relationship with the Lord. And I can go and cry before God all I want and then come out and be a normal human being to the rest of the world. And it's okay because I was a crybaby in the right place to be that crybaby. And we should look to other believers as their example as they follow Christ. But ultimately, we need to follow Christ. And ultimately, we need to grow up and be the example for others to begin to follow him. Because people are going to die off and we're getting older. And eventually, that's going to be it. And other people need to see the truth. But I believe in the message. And I'm, I don't know that we're going to make it all the way through. Maybe it's a, a two-part or a three-part. But I think just two-part. Hopefully, we can make it one-part. But if we had a Venn diagram, you know, the circles that interlap and they have different things over them. And you see where, the, where they overlap. If you have red, red and yellow and where they overlap is green. I think this is where the Venn diagram of personal worship and corporate worship and our message begin to overlap. Because there are things in our lives that overlap the church corporately. And there are things in the church corporately that overlap our personal lives. And yet some things are still separate and some things are not. But they both completely affect one another. If we think the church doesn't affect our personal worship and our personal worship doesn't affect the church, then we're mistaken. They're linked. They're interlinked. And if we are not personally worshiping, and I don't mean just in song again, I mean that's a big part of it, the adoration of God, um, we cannot corporately worship. If we are not corporately worshiping together, we cannot effectively worship alone. And I don't mean this as a prerequisite to say, oh, you didn't spend any time with worship alone in the morning the Lord, you can't go to church and worship there. I'm saying is, is your heart in the right state? You know, if, if it gets in the right state in corporate worship, hopefully it'll continue in the right state in private worship. And if it gets in the right state in private worship, it needs to continue in corporate worship. And, and don't condemn yourself and let it drag you down and not do one or the other because you haven't been in one or the other. But let them come together as one. You know, we can't effectively worship together if we don't worship on our own. Because we can't just worship one day a week. It's not worship. It's not a relationship with God. God demands our all. And not in the sense that he wants to make us do that, but is it sincere? Is it honest? Is it true? If the only time we spend time with God is one day a week. And maybe it starts out that way. But if that's all it is for your whole life, I have to wonder, how much relationship do we really have? And more than that, how much do we really want? But this relationship between us and God and us and others is a symbiotic relationship. It involves interaction between two different organisms living in close physical association, denoting a mutually beneficial relationship between different people or groups that when we're in the church, it's a relationship between each other, that we are the church. We are the church, that your relationship with me and my relationship with you and my relationship with God and your relationship with God and your relationship with me and our relationship together, when it all comes down to it, is one relationship because we're the body of Christ. Now, the one that most matters to you personally and me personally is our own relationship with the Lord. You know, we can't bring others to heaven with us, so to speak, if they don't have their relationship. But I think I think you're getting with me that it's all we're all related. You know, we're all a body, and if one part hurts, the whole part hurts. It must be rooted and grounded on Him, but branched out to others, because a tree without branches is just a stump. We have a stump in the backyard. There's no branches. It's not growing. It's just there. But branches without a tree, we see branches all over the yard from the winter that i got to go pick up for if I ever have to mow the lawn again. It's just firewood. It's not one or the other. They've got to be both. They've got to be connected and growing. Like Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather and throw him into the fire. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. That being a disciple is what it means to be a Christian, and I think we've separated disciple and Christian. I'm not trying to go around and say, we need to change what I call ourselves. Oh, I'm a follower of Christ. Hey, disciple, I don't think we need to do that. But I think in our understanding, and more importantly in our heart and in our lives, 
We need to live more like disciples and less like Christians who come out for some sort of entertainment once a week. But personal worship, prayer, evangelism, study, and fellowship, seeking disciples, seeking to be discipled, and seeking to encourage in those three types of relationships is the believer's function. Because the church's function, truly, is only an extension of the believer's personal lives. The church's life only exists because the personal believer has life. If the personal believer doesn't have life, and if all the believers in the church don't have life, then the church is dead. The church cannot be alive with dead saints, and dead saints can't exist in a church that's a live church. It's just, it, it, it's the same thing. The church cannot function without the life of the believer functioning. And the way the church functions is a direct result of the way the believers function. Perhaps more so weighted on the leadership of the church because they are the example and they are supposed to train up the church. But that's what the whole ministry is. It's not about any one minister. The pastor's job is to what? Raise up the people, equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The church itself, in a sense, is not the ministry. The church may go out corporately do ministry, but that Sunday thing is not the core ministry. That core ministry is for the church to build up the church to then go out and be Christians. The church is to corporately worship, pray, study, evangelize, and disciple, but the believer is to personally worship, pray, study, evangelize, and disciple. The church corporately is not to be the shepherd of your life. Uh, the, there's a lot of shepherding movements that you have to go to leadership to get approval on what car you buy, what clothes you wear, and this is probably more popular 20, 30 years ago, but there's still echoes of that. Even if we don't call it that, if you hang around the church for a while, uh, you might begin to see these things. And I think it's it might not have, maybe the, the motives perhaps are correct, but it doesn't always have the right fruit because the relationship is not one-on-one. And the church as a whole can make a harsh decision about one person's life because they don't know all the details. And yet sometimes that does need to happen with Corinthians when there's someone in sin and that sin is not being dealt with and his friends have talked to him, his family's talked to him, and the leaders have talked to him, and they still won't repent. And there does come a time for the church to expel someone who's in sin for their benefit, that they might repent, but also for the church's benefit, that that weed doesn't stay in there, that that weed gets dealt with, that the weed might come back as a person and be healthy. But personally, we can disciple others, we can love others, we can reach others. And far too often, I think, we just want to bring someone to church. We want to bring someone to church and let the church do the work. But instead, we need to bring them to Jesus. Now, bringing them to church might be a result of wanting to bring them to Jesus. Part of wanting to bring them to Jesus might be inviting them to church with you, but the end goal should not be inviting them to church. The end goal is, the primary goal, the only goal, is to get them to Jesus. The fellowship of believers, the church, is not the destination. Instead, it should be like the public uh, rocket launching pad that brings us to the heavens. That if we're struggling in our personal time, we can go to church and know that the others are going to lift us up and help get us up. And if we're doing well in our personal time. We know that we can go and, and are being okay and reaching out to others is going to help lift others up. That we're together going uh, to the same destination. But I believe the problem is that we see the church as an organization, as a company, as a 501c3, as a, a, a place to go and expand a new franchise. But instead, it's an organization that that cannot do things separate from the life of a believer. That the, the church corporately should only have a corporation if it benefits the corporation of believers, the group of believers. You know, it's a lot of times we come and say, my pastor will do that. Or I come to church to get ministered to. And I get that on some degree. You know, we, we all come to church to get ministered to. It's healthy. It's good for us. Or I just come to hear the teaching. Or I come only to sing songs. Or I come to have an outlet to serve. Okay, but that shouldn't be the only outlet. That should be an outlet perhaps to serve other believers in some sense on a Sunday, but that's not the end of ministry. Ministry should be every day. It should be in our personal prayer time. It should be when someone's hurting, when someone has a need, all these things. And the church is part. I'm not negating the church, but I'm saying is we've forgotten all these other things. The church at large, whether it's discipling, worshiping, studying, evangelizing, fellowshipping, etc., should be like when looking through a microscope what we see the individuals doing. You know, we saw something in a microscope yesterday with the kids. And if we look at the church as a whole and come down and look as a microscope, is that what the people are doing? Or is that just the program this week? And I'm not saying it's wrong to have programs. You know, we need to give an outlet for people to learn how to do these things and get involved in things together. 
But a lot of times I think it's, it's, it's missing this connection. It becomes just an activity to do. Is the mission trip really for the church to have a vacation? Or is it sincerely for people that they're out there reaching to come to Jesus? The church at large is the outlet for the believer to co-minister, co-labor in the gospel. It's never to take the place of the individual, but to magnify the work of God in each individual in a corporate way. To help produce that 100 times, that 60 times, that 30 times. You and I are not going to be 100 times fruitful on our own. It's impossible. How can one little plot of land bear 100 times fruit that season unless it gets some help? Unless it's cross-pollinated, unless it's germinated, unless there's some fertilizer put on there, unless you get help in bringing these crops and planting these crops and picking them up and not. But Paul says, sadly, there are not many like-minded when it comes to this. He says, uh, basically, in, in Philippians 2, 17 through 21, I'm not going to do the whole thing for time, but he says, um, I have no one like-minded, for who will sincerely care for your state? For all seek their own, not the things of Jesus Christ. He says that I'm sending Timothy to you because I know that he believes the right things, that he's willing to do the right things. He's not me, but it doesn't matter he's not me because he's about God. and He's going to take care of you, but... I can't say that about a lot of people, Paul says. I can't say that about all these people I minister to. I can only send Timothy to you because I know that he's genuinely cared about you for Jesus. And it's sad to say that today the church becomes kingdom building. It becomes about a man, about a woman, a specific ministry to go to. And it's not about Jesus anymore. And yet Paul says, even in Philippians 1, 15 through 17, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that affliction of my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul knew that it was only about Jesus. And he said, look, I'm not going to spend all day picking apart every ministry out there. You know, Every servant is servant of God, and God's going to deal with his servants. He did flag people who were completely detrimental to the gospel. But he says, look, as long as the gospel is going out, I don't care. I want the gospel to get out. Yeah, there, this is heresy and avoid that and avoid that. But I'm not going to sit and pick apart different people because that's counterproductive. That's what the enemy does. But what he's going to say, I just want the gospel to get out because the gospel will fix all that. If the people in the church are in a church and the church is going astray and the people generally want the gospel and they seek the gospel and it doesn't change, well, they'll leave the church and they should leave the church quietly and go have church together somewhere else. I'm totally for that. The leadership needs to be open to hearing that. And again, if the leadership are in the right place and the body, you know, there, there's all these variables that go in with that. But we really need to be seeking Jesus. And if the leadership's not seeking Jesus, then the people in the body who are seeking Jesus are going to see that. And there's going to be, uh, there needs to be right division. But if the leaders are seeking Jesus, sometimes people leave in the church because they want their own kingdom. They're not given their own kingdom. It's sad because it all comes down to we've left our first love. But Paul knew that there was a better way. Like Jesus said in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father through me. And he says in 15, 13, greater love is no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That, that is being a believer. Going for, striving for, following after Jesus, no matter what way it takes you, because you know there's only one way, and that way is narrow. It's not a wide path. It's a narrow path, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to hurt. But if you know Jesus is the one on that path, you're going to keep following there. And as we're on that path, it might mean, it will mean at some point, laying our lives down for him and for others. That might not mean the cross, but it might mean, well, all right, I'll let you have your way, brother. I'll let you go your way. Like we saw Abram and Lot last week. Lot said, Abram said, whatever it takes to have peace with you, Lot, just go your way. I want peace with you. You're my family. You're my brother. Like, you take the better land. You have the better sign on the door. You have the church in the area that I've been working so hard for, but you can have it, brother, because I want there to be peace with you. And unfortunately, we don't see that so often these days. Even amongst the church that we might consider a Philadelphian church, we see divisions that shouldn't be there. And it's not a condemnation. It's of, come on, let's get rid of it. Let's be one church again. And again, I don't mean be one with those who are completely heretical, but to be one of those who are of the way. But that happens only if we're willing to be broken. And like Ash and I were talking yesterday, you know, she shared with me something that the Lord had shared with her about allowing God to break her in worship. And a lot of times I'm like, oh, I'm the one who cries, you're the man. <laughs> you know, you're the one who doesn't cry in this relationship. But I think a lot of times we don't worship, we shy away from worship 
because perhaps we're afraid to be broken. And that's okay. I understand being afraid to being broken. No one likes being broken. But we will be broken one way or another, either by our own volition or by something else in life. And ultimately, we're going to be broken by God in the last day if we haven't allowed him to break us now. Matthew 21, 44, And whoever falls on the stone, Jesus said, will be broken. But whoever it falls, it will grind into a powder. That when we come to Jesus, there's only one option. Us being broken. Otherwise, we're not coming to him. If we haven't been broken, they haven't really realized the truth. That we're already broken. We're already broken. We're already busted. We're already messed up. But we begin to realize that when we come into the presence of a God who is not broken. Sort of, if I, not being in peak physical human condition, come and hang out with someone who works out all the time, I'm going to begin to feel a little broken. I'm going to feel a little self-conscious because this guy is so buff and I'm not. Or when I go to the dentist and they all have pearly white teeth and, and I don't have half my teeth, I feel a little because eh, I begin to realize my brokenness more. I don't brush my teeth as much as these people do, so to speak. But even if I did... It's not the same experience. They might condemn me. They might throw floss at me <laughs> or tell me to eat more chicken breast and work out more and look, look down on me because I haven't reached some standard that they've achieved in their own life. But that's not God. God will never, when he breaks us, condemn us. When God breaks us, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt the same as the world. Because when we're broken by the world, there's, there's no guarantee of hope. Generally, you know, if you have a broken leg and you go to a doctor and he guarantees I'm going to break your leg again to set it, there's hope in that. So there are cases with that, but there's no guarantee of it. When we have relationships that break, it hurts. Maybe they'll come back. Maybe it'll be fixed. Maybe we'll be friends again. But there's no guarantee there. But when we come to the Lord, there's a guarantee of being built up again. And that's the lie that the enemy sows in us when we go to worship God that this is going to break us. We don't want to be broken. It's not good to be broken. But the truth is, we need to see that we're broken because that's the only way he's going to make us better. Because the breaking of the Lord always leads to restoration. Like we read, bruised reed, smoking flax, will never leave you nor forsake you. He's got a hope and a future for you that whenever God breaks us, it's because he wants to make us better. Because he knows that you're broken. I had a better plan for you. I have a better purpose for you, but this isn't it. I have to put you back together. But now is the time. Because we cannot be made one with God and one with others as the church if we have not allowed him to break us personally. You know, now is the time. It's much better to be broken with God because it will allow you to go through a broken experience and trial without being broken further. But instead, that trial and that hard experience, if we've allowed God to break us before it, will only build us up. We'll only come out on the other side of that trial stronger. That experience of breaking you down will only build you up into a holy habitation of the Lord. So if then, with that, what is the church? As we come to a very long close here, the word ecclesia is a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place, an assembly, united into one body. We can't be united as one body unless we've been broken and made into the right part. Because if, if none of us allow each other to be broken, we're all going to come in thinking we're the boss of the show. It doesn't work that way. You know, sometimes it works. You just have to realize, this is just my position. I'm not the boss, so this is the way it is. As much as I think it should be different, it's not my job. I'm going to do my job as well as I can. And if I have an opportunity to try and make it right, I will. But sometimes you come along and you do that for a while and you realize, oh, that really is the right way to do it. I just didn't know how things work. But the church is believers. It's being believers together. And without it, I don't know that you're being a believer because the Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake the gathering together of the believers. Uh, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as this together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another. So as much more you see the day approaching that the church is meant to build each other up, meant to make sure we, we stay on the right path together and to make sure that we're ready for the day that is coming soon. And that's the day of Jesus' return. You know, Acts 2.42, it talks about uh, the disciples. They continued daily with one accord, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. It says that fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Then when the church is operating correctly, people will come to him. People will come to the Lord. Even if they reject Jesus, the fear of God will be upon them. 
And if you look at the world today, I don't see the fear of God on people. And I understand that's what's going to happen in the last day. But I have to wonder, at least in our country, if part of that's not the church's fault. Because the church hasn't been acting the way the church should be acting. The church hasn't had the right relationship with the Lord. The church has been too busy in building its own kingdom, trying to make things look cool and act cool that the world might accept the worship. And we've forgotten that it's not the world who we want to accept our worship. It's God who should accept our worship. Worship and Bible study experience early on, you know, uh, sorry, you know, like I said before, only I can do this. Oh, we can do this. You know, that, that there is a right way to worship God and there's a wrong way to worship God. And sometimes nowadays the, the church tries to make this big show of things and then the other part of the church tries to make as little show of it as possible. And neither is more holy than the other. It's okay to have a big, giant worship conference and concert for God if the heart is to worship God. If the people playing are there playing their best to do God. If the people come together and have all these things and it brings the most to God, then great. Just like it's not more holy to have a more simple experience because you're worshiping the simple experience. You shouldn't be worshiping either experience. You should be worshiping Jesus. And the experience should be a result of that worship to where... A lot of times, yeah, you'll have lights and lasers and smoke, and, and that really does take away from it. But also, if there's one guy who has no idea how to play the guitar, and apparently this is the most simple worship you have, how can you worship if you're not being led there? Um, and yet, it's not dependent on another. It's the Spirit of God. You know, the enemy claimed to be the worship leader in heaven, that he knew everything, he was all bright and shiny, and he brought everyone to himself, and he was cast out of heaven. Like we said before, how much effort did it really take to lead people in heaven to worship God? God's there. It takes zero effort whatsoever. And more than that, it's the Holy Spirit's job. Please, in our worship. See, it was just, God was just letting him do his thing because he was a creation before he fell. Um, but the Holy Spirit's going to lead us in worship no matter, what it, no matter what it looks like. Now, again, there's right and wrong, and we're not going to get into those details. But sincerely, the heart should be there to worship God as what Jesus said in spirit and in truth. And as we get here in a close, I'm just uh, in Samuel. I'm not going to read it for time, but if you want to look it up later, it's 2 Samuel 6, 12 through 23. And talks about when David leads the procession of the Ark of the Covenant. And they do sacrifices, and David ends up stripping down to his lower robes and dancing and singing and praising God. And his wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, looks out the window. David. And when he gets home, she gives him the what for? She says, look at you out there. Oh, how great and wonderful the king is. Dancing in his underwear, so to speak. Before, oh, and look at all the girls looking at you and how wonderful and holy you are, David. Well, where was Michael? Why wasn't Michael out there worshiping? Why was she up in the ivory tower? And he says, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I wasn't doing it for them. I didn't even know who was there. I was there for the Lord. And you know what? I'll be even more disgraced and undignified than that. It doesn't matter if I'm the king. I'm David, God's son, and I'm going to worship him. And that's the way we should be in worship. I don't care who's there. I don't care who's around me. Oh no, I started crying. Good. If God's breaking something in me and I need to bring my sin to him, then good. Because that needs to happen. And good. Maybe someone else will see me crying and see the freedom to cry. Maybe someone else will see me and the freedom of worship and worship God too. Because if we sit there and we go, oh, I can't do this. What are we doing? We're stopping God from working. We're saying, God, no, don't have your way with me. Lord, have your way. Have my life. But God, don't have your way. You know, on the outside, we're praising on the inside. Or cringing. And granted, if you can't sing that well, don't feel like you need to shout at the top of your lungs. But sincerely, maybe maybe you need to. Sometimes there's an emboldening in that. But as uh, we go for our second closing here, uh, again, this message went way longer than I expected to. But it's not about the experience. It's about the one we see through it. And sometimes we don't feel like worshiping, whether that's read it, you know, as the whole experience of Christian worship towards God. We don't feel like it, but as we do, he begins to change us as we do. And we go, oh, I'm so glad I decided to read my Bible tonight, even though I was so tired. But it's nice, I, I try and fall asleep, and I can't fall asleep, because I was so tired when I went in there, and I'm like, I need to read my Bible. And then I fall asleep. Because <laughs> God's like, you can't do this. You wouldn't go to bed without eating. I'm not letting you go to sleep without reading. You need this. You know? Um, it's not guilt. It's reality. And I feel better for it. And even if it was guilt, I need to repent of it. Because if he died on the cross, I can sort of spend 30 seconds reading a chapter before I go to bed. But it's because he saved us. And that's the miracle, is that he met with us. It's not that the worship was great, that there was a great show, and the songs were great, but that God would actually come spend time with us. Whether there were just a few of us, or whether there's many of us, the important thing is, is was their time with Jesus. But the point of church is that we meet with Jesus. And when we come to church, that should be the goal. 
when we sit down to read at night, that should also be the goal. Not for knowledge. Not to come, oh, I need to learn more of the Bible today. And I think sometimes that's thrust upon us as why we read the Bible. Maybe it's not thrust in word, but that's the impression we get. But that's for time with Jesus. The knowledge of the word will come out of that. The more time we spend with him and read his word, we'll get to know it. You know, but Jesus said with Mary and Martha, when Mary sat down and Martha was busy and complaining that Mary wasn't up there, he said, she's done the, the best thing, the most important thing. She's sitting at my feet. It doesn't matter if dinner's done on time. It matters that we're here and you're hearing from me. When we come to church to hear a good message, it's not the point. It's not a bad thing to hear a good message. It's not a bad thing to want a good message. But that's not the end of it. We should come to church to meet with Jesus. If we did that and the message was awful like today, well, okay, did you still meet with Jesus? We came there for him. We didn't come there for a mug. I got a mug when I visited church. And I was kind of, great, that's nice, I get it, and I don't think there's anything really wrong with it. This isn't why I came here. <laughs> I'm not going to come back next week because you gave me a mug. I'm going to come back next week if I met with Jesus. And if I come back next week because you gave me a mug, what are you going to give me this week? Am I going to get a plate? <laughs> you know, Am I going to get a t-shirt? You know, I get it. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. You're trying to show someone that they're welcome. I get that. But be careful what we catch people with because that's what we have to keep them with, as it's been said. Because you know what? We don't need to go to church to hear a wonderful speaker. We don't need to go to church to hear a great band. In fact, you probably hear a better speaker not going to church. You probably hear a better band going to the concert down the street because that's what they worship. That's their whole life. We'll get a better door prized even. But the point is that when we come to church, we spend time with Jesus. And if you go to church and as trying hard as you may, you're trying to find Jesus and spend time with Jesus at that church and he doesn't minister to you, even if he's ministering to someone other, that's not your church. Even if it's a good church, even if it's a healthy church, God has something else for you. But I think the church at large is missing that. The believer at large is not aware of that. And I wonder at half the time, maybe it's because we were never shown it. Maybe it's because we were never aware of how deep the well is. You know, David said, my cup runneth over. Or maybe it's because we're not that good soil we think we are. Maybe we're not loving the church like we think we are. Maybe it's because we haven't allowed God to break us. Maybe we haven't fully turned from our ways and desired God's ways in us. You know, Second Chronicles, we know this. If my people who are called by my name and will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We say we want a revival. We say we want to see God work. We say we want people to get saved and for the word to go out. But as believers in our own time, we haven't humbled our ways. We haven't sought his face. And if we don't, you know, we wonder why our lives, our families, our churches, our nation, our country isn't healed. We wonder why, I, think, I mean, things are going to progress, granted. The world's going to keep rotting. But we still need to be salt. And if things aren't salty, oh, then I'd be worried, you know, because religion won't save us. If we're just going about the same old, same old, that's not going to do any good. We come to church every week, do the same old things, but we're not seeing God work. I have to wonder if what we're doing is the right thing. We bash the religious folk all the time as Protestants sometimes. But is not the majority of modern Protestant Christian practice just simply religion? Sit up, sit down, go forth, come back. Again, those things when done right are correct, but are we not just going through the motions sometimes? Perhaps they're God-toward at best, but maybe they're pagan at worst. Like I said, an unbeliever can't, Lead, God, lead people in worship to God. How can he if he's not a believer? Just because he plays the guitar well, that's not going to bring glory to God. And how I've heard of churches that bring unbelievers in just because they're good musicians. I'm like, whoa! <laughs> what are you worshiping? Because that's not what God wants. God desires obedience and not sacrifice. He accepts the humble and not the proud. He's near the brokenhearted, but far from the one who thinks he's rich in his own strength. When we come to church, do we want Jesus? If we're coming for something else again, why do we bother? Because it's not the simple surface. Like I said, it's not simple worship that matters. But what matters is that, is it holy? Is there holiness in the church? Is there holiness in the leaders? Is there a forsaking of sin and of the wrong way? Is there a lifting up of Jesus in the cross? Is there a loving of the unlovable, but 
not a loving of the sin. Because when I come to church, when I, as I live life, I want to see God. I hope I want to be with Him more. I know I don't want a club. I don't want a lesser experience in life, a lesser crop. I want to be the hundredfold crop, and yet halfway through my life, I'm going, I hope I'm the thirtyfold crop. I thought I would be the hundredfold crop when I was twenty-two, and now I'm going. Am I going to be any crop? I think that's Paul was saying too. I'm the chief of sinners. God, please do something. Because this world never satisfied. Our Christian accomplishment will never satisfy. Because we need to be satisfied in Him. And I want to be satisfied in Him. And I want to want, at least in some sense of me, all that He intends. But in order for me to really want that, in order for me to really get that, and you to get it, is that we need to be broken. Because I can say that I want it all day long, but if I don't allow myself to be broken, how can I receive it? I can say that I want a good, wonderful marriage all day long, but if I'm out gallivanting all the time and enticing other relationships, I'll never have a good, holy marriage. And even if I don't do that, you know, there's a million factors. I'm not saying one thing or the other. But when it comes to the Lord, man, if I need that, I need to allow Him to break me. And when I do get brought to that piece of brokenness, I need to allow Him to rebuild me and not just go from it. That was my problem before I knew the Lord, being broken all the time. And just picking up the next day and going about my business and not repenting. And even now, that's my problem. If We need to continually repent. But that's okay. Because he's going to do the breaking. And he's going to do the growing. Because we can't. I think a lot of the times is we feel like when we don't want to be broken is because we feel like we have to do the rebuilding. But we don't. All we have to do is, is allow him to do the breaking and he'll do the rebuilding. But we have to be, as we close here... His church, willing to go, willing to say, and willing to do. But that only comes if we're willing to be broken, willing to be embarrassed, willing to be vulnerable, willing to be poor in spirit or poor in bank account. But we'll be rich in love, Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And if we're honest, I think if we're all here, hopefully we want more of Jesus. And we need more of Him. But we have to let Him give Himself to us. We can't have more of Him until we've allowed, um, allowed Him to be Him. Amen? God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, God, that You love us and You care for us. and You never give up on us, God. And we thank you for that, God. So we ask that there would be more of you and less of us, that you would heal your church, you would heal your people, you would bring about holiness and righteousness, but God, that you would bring that revival that we, every believer, no matter what church they think they belong to or where they are in their walk, I think would say they want more people to know you. I hope that. So God, do that. Have your way, God, here. Let there be room in this valley and in every valley for you, God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.